Good morning, my friends. It is awesome to see each one of you. We have an opening scripture from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So if you would grab your Bible, if you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 767. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm so grateful for these few scriptures that the Lord led to this morning. He has a purpose with every scripture that we read in his house. And um, it was like I could see that the Lord wanted to say something to prepare us for worship, but what? How great he is, how awesome he is, how lowly we are. But these words are so perfect. Read with me just verses 1 through 3. Walk prudently when you go into the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. And what this is saying is that we have gathered today in the Lord's house, and with friends for fellowship and for worship and for a lot of things, but we have gathered in the Lord's house where the Lord's Spirit dwells. We should not gather in this place to share our opinions or our perspective or our ideas but to hear from the Lord, that our words would be few, that our prayers would be few, that our ears would be open. That's what the purpose of the Lord's house is. And Solomon is saying about wisdom and understanding that these are things we gather by being quiet and silent and listening. I love this, because we're here to worship the Lord and to sing songs and pray, but these are the things that are prepared to prepare us for hearing his word. And not from a person, but from the mouth of God through his servant. And I pray that this would be the case for us today, and that we would be transformed. Would you join me? Oh Lord, your word is so good. Your understanding is so good. It points a mirror to us, Lord. Would we long to hear your voice? Would we long to hear your word? Would we long to be given understanding? I pray that your spirit would be poured out mightily today in this place and that you would be glorified, that we would be unified with your spirit and that we would be changed for your purpose. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Before we um, start with our music, I wanted to share a couple of pictures with you. So 
Roger's got these pictures. This is the family that was in, or is in, Kentucky, Bowling Green, Kentucky, and was hit by the tornado. And so they are working on the house and trying to get the house. I think they've got the frame started on the house, so they're replacing the house. And we were responsible for getting a car, or I don't guess we were responsible. God allowed us the opportunity to get a car. So this car was delivered to the Board family last week. Isn't that a great car that the Lord provided? I love it. And, uh, and then the next slide shows you this is Mrs. Board with uh, our friend that we've been working through out there. This is Liz. And so she's so excited. Mrs. Board is just uh, elated. She started back to work last week. So being able to have a car to get back and forth is just wonderful. And uh, these are just some friends that came and celebrated that day as Liz brought the, uh, the vehicle over to Mrs. Board. So her, I believe her name is Vicki. And so we're just so excited to be a part of what God is doing. And so I hope you'll continue to pray for the Board family, Mr. and Mrs. Board, and all that God is doing in their lives to transform what was meant for evil into good. So thank you. Let's stand and praise the Lord. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this i hold my hope is only jesus for my life is holy I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor and rejoicing for in my need his power is displayed to this I hope my shepherd
One day when I'm tired and weary, bones find their rest. One day when the power of evil's brought to an end, we will see the promised land. We will see the promised land.
Hey everybody, this is one of those um, live flash broadcasts. This is Paul Wilbur. I want to share a particular opinion with you of what's happening right now in the world. Um, I'm just looking to see some of you getting on. Maybe I should strum my guitar and that will do it. But I'm I'm on today uh, to pray and give you a little bit of a perspective of what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, it's my opinion that no matter what's going on in the world, it always has to do with Jerusalem. Danielle, hi Danielle, Geraldine, good to see you. No matter what's going on in the world, it is my opinion that it always is about Jerusalem. Now, I won't take a long time, but I want to just give you a little bit of background. I just came from uh, a very important um, conference of, of apostolic and prophetic voices in Dallas, Texas, um, many of them you would recognize and know who they are. But the point is this. As we were worshiping on Friday and Saturday and, and praying, I, I saw something that I want to share with you for prayer. Uh, I, I saw what I would call um, an unholy trinity. An unholy trinity. Trinity, what am I talking about? The, the recent Olympics that happened in China, I believe, was a smokescreen for a, a pact among three nations who are very anxious to resurrect a world-dominating empire. The first one I saw is China. Now, look, some of these things may be, uh, really, isn't this obvious? Well, maybe not where I'm going with this. Number one, the nation of China. Number two, the nation of Russia. And number three, the nation of Iran, ancient Persia. And here's, here's what I saw as they met together behind a closed door. Putin would speak to Xi and say, look, I want to expand further into the Ukraine. Promise me that you won't hinder me and you won't stand against me for this expansion. And then China says, yes, well, I want to expand. I want to take Taiwan and then eventually other islands in the Eastern Sea, including Philippines and Japan and others. And if you won't hinder me, Russia, then I won't hinder you. And then Iran speaks up and says, okay, guys, I have a desire. And if I don't hinder you in your expansion, I want Jerusalem. I want Israel. I need your help with, with atomic weapons. And I don't need you hindering me so that I can expand to my ancient Persian empire. It belongs to us. We deserve it. 
And this is what I saw as we were worshiping there in Dallas, that there is an unholy trinity. People are wondering why is bombing still going on in Syria right now? Well, especially in Syria, because now that all the attention is, one, off of the Olympics and China, two, it's off of everybody else because of the Ukraine and Russia, and now Iran thinks that they can sneak in under the smoke screen while nobody's watching and bring their guided missiles and bring their other purchased weapons that they've gotten from uh, from other nations and post them, basically surround Israel the way that Russia has surrounded the Ukraine. Now, all of the plans to overthrow Israel and to destroy Jerusalem are coming to naught. But I want you to see that this is the plan of the enemy. No matter what's happening in the world today, the plan of the kingdom of darkness is always to overtake and to overthrow Israel, to destroy the Jewish people. It's Haman all over again. And so isn't it interesting that in just a couple of weeks, the feast of Purim is coming up, the feast of Esther, when Haman had his plot to destroy every Jew in the entire kingdom. So under the, the smoke screen, when the world is paying attention to the Olympics, and now the world is paying attention to Russia and Ukraine, Iran is still continuing to work its plan to destroy the state of Israel, destroy the Jewish people, and take Jerusalem the prize. Now I want you to know that their plans will not succeed. But isn't it interesting also that right now in the Ukraine, there is the largest Messianic Jewish congregation in the world, pastored by one of my dear friends, Pastor Boris, a Jewish believer, in Kiev, is now surrounded by Russian troops. 2,500 Messianic Jewish believers in the world's largest Messianic congregation. And it's surrounded right now with anti-God troops who simply want more land. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When you see this, yeah, everything is about Jerusalem. I see it this way. I believe it's the truth. And we need to pray. Will you pray with me now as we believe for God to stand and defend? Lord, you have called us as your people to stand and pray, to stand on the wall, to watch and to pray, to take a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other. And Lord, to stand on behalf of your people, of your Jewish people, uh, of the, the people of the Ukraine. And Lord, we call upon you, the captain of the hosts of the armies of God, that you, Lord, would open your mouth, as you said in Joel chapter 3, that you would thunder from Jerusalem, that you would roar from Zion, that you will surround your people as a shield, as the mountains surround Jerusalem. Lord, we're calling upon you now to surround your people there 
in the Ukraine. Lord, I pray for storms. I pray for for snowstorms. I pray that their heavy machinery would bog down in the ice and the mud. And Lord, that you would do a miracle that you would keep and protect your people. As in the days of Jehoshaphat, Lord, let it be in these days that you, you as the captain of the host of the armies of God, that you defend your people. For he who keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He ne lo yanum ve lo yishan, ve lo yanum ve lo yishan. Lord, we give you thanks. Let your voice be heard. Open your mouth, Lion of Judah, and roar like never before. Send a sound from Jerusalem, from that place, and destroy the weapons of the enemy. And Lord, may many in these hours turn to you and recognize Yeshua HaMashiach, who Adonai, that Jesus the Messiah, you are Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, we believe today. We believe. I've been texting with my pastor friend in Kiev this morning, letting him know that we're praying. There are now thousands and thousands of us praying together and believing. We are now becoming, we are the body of Messiah. This is how the body of Christ stands in the day of trial. And even in that day, when Jehoshaphat was surrounded and outnumbered 200 to 1 by three separate nations, and the word of the Lord came and told them, go out to face them, but don't pick up a shield and a sword. No, go out and sing a song of praise and his presence that inhabits the praises of his people. People of the Ukraine, take up a song of praise and watch the victory of the Lord. Amen, amen. Well, we're going to take a minute away from John today, and we're going to be in the book of Esther. So if you'll turn with me to in your Bibles to page 566. So several weeks ago, when Russia began the invasion of Ukraine, I immediately knew in my spirit that this was a different battle than some of the battles that we hear about and some of the wars and fighting that's going on and has gone on for years and the places that we're very aware of. Not to say that they're not all somewhat spiritual battles. They are. And the enemy is always involved in it. But what I saw and knew in my spirit was that this battle, this time, was something different. This was something that this, in the spirit realm is very significant. And I've been watching it and praying about it and talking to the Lord and, and just... Um, really drawn in the spiritual world to try to understand what's going on. And then one day, 
this clip came up on my phone of Paul Wilbur, and I began to, I felt like the Lord just put it there for me to begin to grab hold of some understanding that I was searching for. And he said something very powerful in there. He said, there's a holy, uh, I'm sorry, there's an unholy trinity. And I thought, yes, I've seen that. I've seen this place in this battle that there is more going on than what we can visualize with our physical eyes. There's a lot going on in the spirit realm. And so he talked a little bit, Paul Wilbur talked a little bit about Haman and how the, uh, the enemy was working to kill the Jews. So I want to go back and just look at this place in Esther and quickly pull together some understandings that I think will help us today to begin to see what God is calling us to do with this spiritual battle that's going on. So it's not that we're just called to know that it's going on. I believe there is a place we're going to be called to enter into what God is doing. So if you'll join with me on page 566. Um, I'm not going to read a lot of this. I want, I'm going to point out some things. And then, because um, we, we don't have time, but I hope this week that you might take the time to read the book of Esther. It's not very long, and, uh, and I think it would be a great place for you. By the way, Purim, which uh, will be talked about in, in uh, Esther here, was the middle of this last week. And so it was celebrated by the Jewish people. It's not God's uh, Moedim. It's not one of God's appointed times, but it is a Jewish festival, a Jewish holiday that is uh, a place of coming and celebrating the victory that God had over the enemy where he is trying to overcome the Jewish people. So Esther <clears throat> takes place in Persia. And um, there is a king, King Ahasuerus, and he's the king of Persia. But what I want you to remember in your mind as we start to look through this, this area, this land of Persia is modern-day Iran. I think that is significant. <clears throat> and so... He, uh, the king is basically, he's hosting a big party. It starts out in chapter 1. And he's hosting this big party. And a bunch of his guy friends are there. And on a couple of days into the party, he gets uh, pretty drunk, is kind of what is uh, insinuated in this place. And he makes a request of his king, a queen. And uh, he asked the queen to join the party the next day, but to wear nothing but her crown. So he is insinuating that she should come without any clothes on. Well, the queen does not do this, and she says, no, she will not. And so this makes the king and some of his uh, hierarchy very upset. They said, listen, we can't let this go on. There's got to be a way 
to handle this situation. You know, she can't just decide what she wants to do and doesn't want to do. You need to get rid of her. So sure enough, the queen's out, and um, the king takes her life for this, and she's no longer queen. So now they are looking for a new queen. By the way, this king is a pagan king. He's not a Jewish king by any means. He is a pagan king in a pagan country of Persia. So they, uh, if you turn the page to chapter 2, then you come along and you see that they are now looking for a queen. Well, skip down to verse 5, and it talks about right here a Jewish man whose name is Mordecai. Mordecai was in, he's a Jewish man, but he has been, like many of the Jewish people, dispersed throughout other areas, no longer living in Israel and with his people. He, if you remember, lots of people had, uh, lots of Jewish people had been spur dispersed, and so he is in with a lot of Jewish people in Persia. This this place, Mordecai, is interesting. It says he's the son of Jair, and the son of Shimei, and the son of Kish, a Benjamite. This son of Kish is very, very important. So I want you to put your marker here. We're going to look back <clears throat> at who this son of Kish and who this is that he is in the lineage of. So if you'll turn with me to page 319, 1 Samuel 9. So, page 319, 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son, and it lists all these different sons here. And then verse 2 says, And he had a choice and a handsome son whose name was Saul. So interesting enough is Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. All right, now we'll go back to Esther. You go back to page 568 in Esther. We see that Mordecai, starting in verse 7, he is the cousin of Esther. And he thinks of this plan to help the, get Esther into the king's court and, and possibly become queen. And so he devises this plan, and he talks to Esther, and he says, you know, you're going to go, and they are going to ha have favor for you. And, and so she, he gives her a lot of special treatments, and she becomes really 
beautiful, and, and I think she's probably as beautiful inside as outside because everybody is drawn to Esther. And starting in verse 10, it says, Esther did not reveal to the people or the family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. So she did not reveal who she was, that she was Jewish. Mordecai says, listen, I want you to go in there. They're going to have this beauty contest, and you're going you're gonna to win this. And, but don't tell them you're Jewish, because this is a pagan kingdom. So sure enough, she goes, she enters the contest, and she wins. Let me see where I want to just kind of skip through. In the meantime, in chapter 2, you will see that there is a, um, a place where, look at verse 17. It says, and the king loved Esther more than all the other women. I mean, he had great feelings from her right off the bat. So I think she was really beautiful, really kind. And uh, so he begins to have this great feast and uh, feast for Esther. Well, in the meantime, Mordecai, who sits at the gate of the king, so he is in the king's group of workers, so he sits at the gate. I don't know exactly what he does, but he is a part of, of the um, hierarchy. And he actually finds out at the gate that there is this plot to kill the king. And this plot to kill the king um, by these two guys, he goes and uh, brings forth this understanding and saves the king's life. And that's going to become really important down the road. So the next thing I want you to look at is starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And he talks right here about the King Osiris promoted Haman, and he's an, an agate. And this Haman, I want you to recognize where he's from. So let's look back to page 327. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. Starting in verse 1, it says, Samuel also said to Saul, now this is King Saul. So you remember just a minute ago, we looked at that Mordecai comes out of, is a descendant of King Saul, comes out of his lineage. So this is King Saul. Samuel says to King Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalekite for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek 
and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Samuel comes and he says, you're going to be king over Israel and you're going to go and kill Amalek and all the people and all the animals because what they did to the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. God was not okay with that. And if you want to go back and read in that, I think it's a Exodus 17. And you will see that they were very, um, they came and, 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 and killed the very innocent, the, the people that were injured and the people kind of dragging along behind. And God didn't do well with that. So he is bringing judgment on the Amalekites. Now, if you turn the page in 1 Samuel 15, and look at verse 7, it says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites. And then verse 8, it says, He also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So Samuel comes and he says, You're supposed to kill everybody. And Saul did not do that. He took this king alive. So he did not obey. And then you probably, let's skip down to verse 13. Samuel comes and he says in verse 13, Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. So Saul is trying to just make good with Samuel here. He says, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. He's trying to, you know, tell him, right, I'm good with the Lord. The Lord's okay with me. And But in verse 14, it says, But Samuel says, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the ox which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, so now he blames the people, spared the best of the sheep and the ox to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So he didn't do what God said. He didn't destroy everything. But he says some of the people brought some of these things back. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. And he said to me, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribe of Israel? And did not the Lord, Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoils and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And so the, the Lord comes against this place because he's totally disobeyed the Lord and he allowed the king to live. Uh, let's look at verse 20. It says, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of the uh, Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to Lord your God. 
So he's saying, listen, I, I did destroy everybody else. I just brought this one king back. And we brought back some of the great sheep and ox, and we're going to sacrifice those to God. And so it sounds like they're doing the right thing, but they're not obeying God. They're not obeying God. So I want you to turn back with me to uh, Esther now. And I want you to realize who we have in this situation. So we have the descendant of King Saul, who did not obey God. Do you hear me? That guy's name's Mordecai. And then Haman, on the other side, who is a descendant from this King Agag, who is also a descendant from Esau, who was always against what God's plan was from the very beginning between Jacob and Esau. So in chapter 3, we see that Haman comes along and he is going to, uh, he's very mad at Mordecai because he doesn't bow down to Haman. So let's read from verse Two down. It says, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. So he's high up in the king's group, and everybody's supposed to bow down to him. So this is chapter 3, verse 2. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. All right, he absolutely will not bow down. Because he's Jewish, and he's not going to bow to something else or somebody else. Then the king's servants, who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commandment? Now it happened, when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Then Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage. Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay a hand on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. So Haman, in his pride and in his arrogance is angry because Mordecai won't bow down, but he knows there is such a large number of Jewish people that will support Mordecai. So now he makes this plan out to destroy all of the Jews. All right, turn with me to chapter 4 on the next page. And so there is this plan set out to kill them and um, interesting enough they throw throw, uh, lots and cast lots to try to determine what day is going to be the day that they actually uh, destroy the Jewish people and if you look I I wanted to show you this in chapter 3 on verse 7 it says that they cast pure P-U-R, pure, 
That's where Purim comes from, is this pure means lots. And so they were casting lots. And the sovereignty of God caused these lots to fall so that they would plan on this day of execution and annihilation of the Jews, and it would fall in the very last of the month of the, of the season, of the year. The very last month of the year. And this is the first month of the year. So they were casting these lots for the year and the day, and so it falls to the very last of the year. So that gives God time to work out his plan and we just see the sovereignty of God in these places. So then on um, chapter 4, Mordecai, is he hears of this place, and he just becomes so overwhelmed. And he puts on sackcloth, and he begins to fast, and he is mourning and weeping. But he's mourning and weeping out of this place of fear, not trusting in God. He is not uh, coming in a place of fasting trusting that God will do. He is coming in a place of fear. But Esther, he talks to Esther about this, and Esther says, listen, tell the people. Everybody's got to fast, and everybody's got to pray. And she walks into God's plan in lots of strength and courage and faith, trusting that God will guide her through this place. So chapter 4 is really about this place of calling a fast. Chapter 5, I know I'm taking you through this pretty quickly, but I just want you to grab the story, and hopefully you'll read it this week. So chapter 5 is where uh, Esther is going to go before the king. Mordecai says, listen, Esther, you're going to have to go to the king, and you're going to have to tell him what's going on to save your people to save the Jewish people. And she says, well, I can't go into the king because unless I've been called, um, unless he hands over his gold, um, his gold uh, scepter, then I can be killed because of just deciding myself to go in before the king. And so she says, everybody fast and pray, and I'm going to do this. So she they fast and, th and pray for three days, and on the third day, she goes into the king. And the king receives her and hands over the gold scepter. And so she comes in and has counsel with him. And what she tells him is that she would like to prepare a banquet and have the king and Haman join her for this big banquet. So she has this plan in mind that I believe we can see that God orchestrated this place through her. So she invites the king and Haman to come to the banquet. So sure enough, the next night they come to the banquet. They get to the banquet and she says, well, listen, I want to have a second banquet and I want you to come. And so sure enough, she comes to the second banquet. And... Um, in the meantime, the king says at the banquet, he says, oh, he says, has anybody uh, seen that Mordecai should be honored for saving my life? And no, nobody has honored Mordecai. And so the king says to Haman, he says, what should we do to honor a person who has saved the life of the king? Well, 
Haman thinks he's talking about him. And so he devises this great thing. He said, you know, you should bring the royal uh, robe and put on him. You should put him on the horse that you've ridden. You should parade him through the town. And everyone should know that he um, has done this wonderful thing to save the king's life. So sure enough, the king says, that is great. Let's do that for Mordecai because he's the one that saved my life. And he said, Haman, make sure this happens. Well, Haman was so angry about this and because it's all just been twisted on him. So sure enough, he does all these great things for Mordecai. And that brings us into chapter six, uh, chapter 5 at the second banquet. Then she begins to explain to the king that there has been this uh, plot to kill all of the Jewish people. And the king says, who would do this? And she says, even Mordecai being Jewish, you know, this is going to be how this is. And he says, who would this be? And she says, well, it's Haman. And so Haman is actually killed on the gallows that he built in a um, plot, in the plot to kill all the Jewish people and Mordecai. So the king comes and does kill uh, Haman in that very place. Let me see if there's anything else I want to tell you about that. So if you re look over here on chapter 8 and um, chapter 7, I'm sorry, right about verse 10, and it says, uh, the king says, you know, hang him on the very gallows. And then verse 10 says, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's wrath subsided. And then they had this big celebration, and this was on the day that we now know as Purim. But if you look down to chapter 8, verse 16, it says, And the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And so the Mordecai uh, wrote up a decree that the king signed that the Jewish people would not be uh, live in fear and that they would have joy and light and a joyful place. So what I want you to grab out of all of this, this great story of Esther, is I think the place that I believe Paul Wilbur was talking about. And I think you can see in this story that there is an enemy behind Cayman. Uh, not Cayman, Haman. There is an enemy behind Haman. And it's the same enemy that we see today and that Paul Wilbur was talking about in this unholy trinity. That the enemy is devising a plan, as he always has, to destroy the Jewish people. It's been going on since God brought them out to be his chosen people. He has a plan. And you remember, he told Abraham, he's, he said, all the people of the world are going to be blessed through you. And God's plan has been unfolding for generations and generations. But we remember Pharaoh tried to destroy 
God's plan and the Jewish people. We see over and over and over again through the Bible places where the Jewish people were, trying, were going to be destroyed, but God brought them through. We remember back to the days of Hitler, and we see how God brought the remnant of the Jewish people and saved them. Many were killed, but not all of them. The Jewish people have continued to exist. But I think that what Paul Wilbur is saying is that as we come closer and closer to the time that is already set in God's calendar for the Jewish people to recognize who Jesus is, then once again the enemy of God, the Antichrist, is causing the enemies to come together under his authority against the Jewish people. I believe with all my heart that's what's going on in, our, uh, um, in Ukraine. Because when this first started, I knew there was something, something spiritually significant about this battle. And Jesus helped me to see that this Zulinski is Jewish. And then they have this large number of Messianic Jewish people in Ukraine. So Messianic Jewish is people that were um, not receiving Jesus as Jewish people. They would not at first receive Jesus, but now have come to recognize who Jesus is as Lord and Savior and their Messiah. That's what Messianic Jewish people are. They have come to receive Jesus as their Messiah. Putin is not Jewish. I looked these things up. When God began to show me, I went and began to look them up. And sure enough, I could see the darkness and the light battling against. It is my prayer that Putin's heart would change. And we have been praying for that. But I have not seen him change. In fact, I've seen him dig his heels in and become stronger and stronger against the ways that God would have him go. I think we saw this with Pharaoh. As Moses went to Pharaoh and said, you know, let these people go. Do not do this. He dug his heels in until finally he hardened his heart and God destroyed him. I believe that what we are seeing is the hardening of heart of Putin. Not the Russian people. Not the Russian people. Many of them are Jewish. But now Putin is even talking about cleansing his own people. In other words, cleansing. He's doing away with the people who disagree with him. He's just going to kill them and cleanse them out of his group. So I think that we are called today to see this war in a way and pray in a way that is different from just um, 
and, and we hate any war. We do. We hate the death of people. We hate the destruction that is caused by war. We do. But there is a battle going on that is far greater. And I want to show you a couple of things that I think are important to recognize. Turn with me to Matthew 23. It's on page uh, four, 1141. While you're turning there, a couple of things that I want you to take home with you today is that I believe the story of Esther shows us first and foremost of God's sovereignty. Of God's sovereignty and of his protection and his provision for his chosen people, Israel. I think we also can see the enemy was working in this story of Esther behind the scenes. But God was sovereign. And God reversed what was ha going to happen and what the plot was against the Jewish people and turned it on the enemy. One of the interesting things about Esther is as you read the book of Esther, you'll notice that God's not mentioned in the book of Esther at all. Which is very, very interesting. I want you to put your marker right here. We're going to come back to Matthew. I want to show you something else that, that I don't want to leave out. Because we did not see... The face of God in Esther. But what I want to suggest to you that we did see was the hand of God. So you don't see God's name. But you saw his work. Turn with me to Deuteronomy real quick. It's on page 239. Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. He says, then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, that they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they shall in that day have not these evil come upon them. Uh, have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. 
And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done. And in that, they have turned to other gods. Okay, I want to tell you this because I want you to see this. There are some people out there claiming that the Jewish people are in this battle with Ukraine because they have turned away from God. And they're using this scripture right here, and they're using Esther. And they're saying that's why God did not have his, uh, his name in the book of Esther. And they're saying that today that the Jewish people have sinned and have turned away from God, and that's why this destruction is going on. The same people used that same argument back when Hitler was destroying the Jews. It enrages me. First and foremost, God has not told us that. So I don't think we can pull this scripture and attribute it to either Esther or to Hitler or to Ukraine today. So I want that to be made clear. I do not believe that's what's going on. The reason the Jewish people do not cry out that Jesus is the Messiah is because God himself has blinded them that the Gentiles could be brought in. It is for your salvation that the Jewish people have not, their eyes have not been opened to be able to see the fullness of who Jesus is. Now, God has been bringing the Jewish people through the ages, a little at a time, to begin to open their eyes. That's his plan. That's his purpose. And they have begun to see. But not all yet. That will not happen until the end of times. Now turn with me to Matthew. As we know, as end times come, it has been prophesied that the Jewish people will return to Israel, to their land. And over the last 50 or 60 years, that has been happening. The Jewish people have been going home to Israel. This morning, I was looking up some things and ran across, and I know God just allowed me to run across it because I wouldn't have found this any other way. But they are expecting 100,000 Jewish people to return from Ukraine who are being uh, out, uh, sent out of the borders or, or, or they're going out of the borders for safety to other countries, Poland and, and all these other countries. But then they're finding their way back to Israel. And there's already been like 27,000 people out of the people leaving Ukraine who have gone back to Israel. And they're expecting over 100,000 Jewish people out of the 
country of Ukraine to make their way back to Israel. I just see what I see in this story of Esther is that God took what was meant for evil and turned it for his purpose and good. I believe that's what's going on. I don't want to come and accuse the Israelite, the Jewish people, and the children of Israel of something that I don't believe you can pull a scripture for and pin on them. Do you see the difference? But rather, this is God's purpose that he's using the evil that he did not want for them, but he is turning that evil for his good, and he knew all along that it would happen because he is sovereign. Just as in Esther, he knew how it would be, and he used each opportunity to fulfill his purpose. And his purpose is to bring the Jewish people back to Israel. And he's using every opportunity to do that. Why? Because when they come back, they will have an opportunity. And Jesus is writing, or is speaking here in Matthew. Matthew is writing of Jesus' words. And he's speaking to his uh, disciples and to the multitudes. But he's also talking very boldly. If you see in the very first verse of chapter 23, he is talking to the multitudes. And he is talking to his disciples. But listen to what he's saying. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And then he comes through and he begins to talk about the ways that the Pharisees and the scribes and how they don't align with the heart of the Father. And he comes down to this very important verse in verse 37 on page 1141. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not have it. You were not willing. You are not willing. He is not talking to all of the Jewish people. You have to hear me. He is talking to the Pharisees. The ones who will not bow the knee to who he is and receive him as the Messiah. But much of the Jewish people, even in the days of the writing of Matthew, were Jewish people. And they're coming to the Messiah. And such as it is today, that they're continuing to come. And it goes on to say in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. He says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus won't come back until the Jewish people have an opportunity. Everyone that is supposed to have an opportunity, God will see that he has an opportunity to know him as Messiah, to receive him as Lord and Savior in the same way that we have that opportunity as Gentiles. 
But God will not open the eyes of all the Jewish people until every Gentile has had an opportunity. Not every Gentile will receive, but every Gentile will have an opportunity. Then he will open the eyes of all the Jewish people, and they will have the same opportunity. And he's doing that over the years and over the time. And then when they all that have the opportunity come to see him, they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus will return. We're going to sing a song that Paul Wilbur did several years ago, and it's a song I've loved. Baruch Haba Basham Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we sing that song, I want you to think about the message that God is trying to help us see, that he has a sovereign plan. Our opportunity today is to decide how we join in with that sovereign plan. You see, God even used, he used Mordecai and he used Esther, who were displaced from their people in a pagan country with lots of turmoil going on, and he used them for his purpose. But I want you to see, he also used even the pagan god. I'm sorry, the pagan king. Woo! The pagan king for his purpose. God's will and purpose will go forth. The question we have is whether or not we want to join in to what God is doing. And I feel very strongly that God has got us today here for this purpose, that we might see this battle in the Ukraine to be far more than just a sad situation and a place that hurts our heart for humanity's sake. It is far beyond that. It is a spiritual battle with the enemy of the Most High God coming against God's people. I believe we can join in prayer, in praying desperately to join in with what God is doing and that his will would be done and that all would see him in this place. They would see that he is king of kings, that miracles would happen, that would cause eyes to be open, both Jews and Gentiles. Ukraine and Russian. But I believe that we can go one step beyond praying, and I believe that is a place of supporting I've been praying about this, and we've already taken up funds and sent off to um, Global Samaritan Resources to help with care packages for people as they come across the borders. But I believe there are other times and other opportunities that are going to come 
for us to be able to help with. And so I think if we would commit as a church to adding some extra money into your uh, giving and marking it for however you want to do that, help Ukraine, or for God's purpose. And then we will be praying and looking for the different places that God would lead us to place that money in the hands of the people he's using. I believe this morning he was talking to me about um, there's a group called uh, International Jews and Christians. And I believe that is an organization that we're going to send some money to as our church. The amount, I'm not sure of yet. But you'll have an opportunity to join in to what God is doing. So my cry of my heart is today is that you will see the battle and you will begin to pray in alignment with God's will. But I pray you will also pray about joining in a place of support that we might be hands and feet of Jesus as he fulfills his purpose in this place. Join me, please, as we sing. Nearly 3,000 years ago, God established this mountain as chief among all the mountains of the world. There are some higher, some grander, but none more lovely, because where the presence of the Lord is, there is true beauty. I believe that in the heart of God, ever since he established the city, he desired to have a people drawn out and called out who would stream to this city to worship the true and living God. Yeshua the Messiah said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks but you are not willing. You will not see me again, Jerusalem, until you say to me, Baruch haba, B'Shem Adonai. And tonight we stand in the gap in this city proclaiming to him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come to your rescue. 
Yeah. 